Hello and welcome back to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking here. Glad to be back with a new episode after last week's audio issues hiccup. As always, with each Painless Podcast, we're here looking to connect with and get to know great people in sports, events, startups, and cause marketing. Today's guest covers all of those. That's Adam Grossman from Block 6 Analytics. It's a startup that works with sports teams, events, properties, as well as cause marketers. The idea for Block 6 truly came to him in the middle of the night while he was getting his MBA at NYU, as well as interning with the Washington Capitals. Wanted to change how to use technology and analytics to bring teams and sponsors together through standardizing valuation of the sponsorships. Block 6 has built out a totally new media analysis and also totally different social sentiment platforms. Those and working with each client to show them, as you could say, uh, what's under the hood, creates a scoreboard that both a buyer or a seller could agree on. This transparency is reducing uh, critically, as Adam explains in our chat, information asymmetry. Adam also talks about how he manages this rapidly growing startup in a rapidly evolving business, sports sponsorship, analytics, and evaluation. You can check out Block 6 Analytics and their work online at block6analytics.com or follow them on Twitter at Block 6 Analytics with the number 6, Block 6 Analytics. Adam is also a great follow, sharing a lot of good information and links to his uh, blogs and uh, articles all over the place that he's doing. His handle is Adam R. Grossman. All righty, let's get to it. Recorded May 9th, downtown Chicago at Block 6's offices. Let's get connected with Adam Grossman. Hello and welcome back to the Painless Podcast. This is Chris Hartwig and today's guest is, as, as many of you listen, know my favorite word, lovely, is the lovely and talented <laughs> Adam Grossman, founder and CEO of Block 6 Analytics. And uh, welcome to the Painless Podcast, Adam. Thank you. I don't think anybody's ever called me lovely before, so I'm well, very excited. And you know where the <laughs> hang-up became that I can't get out of my head was I also used it on your your uh, teaching partner, TK Gore. Oh. And he, he's, well, he is lovely. He so. is lovely. That's true. That's true. It is applicable to TK. Yeah. Um, so I've known you for a year plus now, and I don't know if I've even pestered you about this. Are you from Chicago area originally? Or are you no, from, I'm from the D.C. area originally. That's right. Okay. And so you grew up there and... Uh, through high school? Yes. Okay. And then you came to Northwestern? For undergrad. For and undergrad. I, and I played soccer. Yeah, that's, I didn't know that either. So you yeah. were a varsity soccer player at Northwestern. Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit before, but I almost am in the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. Almost. Almost. So I got invited to a Jewish Sports Hall of Fame having played zero minutes on the team. It just goes to show you how hard or difficult it is to get invited to a Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, but there was a $50 entry fee, and I refused to pay it, which would have automatically gotten me into the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. But uh, I did play soccer for two years at Northwest. I actually did eventually get on the field and was subsequently not very good. But uh, And the team, the team when I was there, we won one game in two years. Ouch. So now the team is way better. So that, well, that tells you you must have been really bad then if you weren't even I wasn't getting good. out of it. Yeah, I wasn't good. So. <laughs> what position? Goalie. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I know. Kind of short for a goalie. Well. Not that anybody can see this, obviously, really? in the podcast. But. Was soccer a big part of the reason that you ended up at Northwestern? Was No, play, actually... Or? Weirdly, um, it's the journalism program. I did this uh, high school, what they call cherubs, like a high school program for a summer uh, at Northwestern. It was because somebody, I was on the school newspaper at the time. Uh, I thought I might want to do something in journalism, so I came to the program at Northwestern. Uh, I really liked my time there, and then I applied early. No intention of playing soccer. Uh, I ended up walking on the team. I actually did sort of get recruited by Duke after I got into Northwestern. So at least I have that going for me, yeah. I guess. But um, no, I just walked on the soccer team there. You were what at that point, once you were in school here, were you still thinking of of journalism? At that, no, at that I almost point? immediately did not decided I did not want to do journalism. Uh, I ended up being a history and psychology major, which, as I often say, are two fantastic majors for getting a job. But um I was just generally interested in history and psychology. In no way did I think about entrepreneurship. In no way was I really thinking about business. Uh, I was potentially considering law school. Uh, I was kind of trying to figure out where I could use my analytical skill set. 
um, you know, I, I ended up going to business school, but I didn't even consider business school when I was an undergrad. So it kind of all morphed after I graduated into. So how did like you, you were, you said it wasn't really seeing the entrepreneurial side or business school side. When did that come together? I mean, was it something that you realized that you kind of were drawn to growing up or no. an aha moment? or Yeah, I mean, from a business school perspective, I my first job out of college, uh, there was a teacher at Northwestern who was an adjunct professor, and he um, recruited some people to his firm, a consulting firm, uh, through uh, what, what is now the Hudson Highland Group, or that eventually got rebranded, our part, Hudson Talent Management, uh, he actually left pretty soon after he recruited two of us to join. Uh, then I moved from there to Huron Consulting. And once I was in consulting, that's where business school really came top of mind. But in no way did entrepreneurship enter my thought process at all, even at that point. Well, but, so at at Hudson Highland and Huron and doing consulting, what kind of consulting were you doing? Uh, I did uh, human capital consulting at uh, Hudson and then uh, legal technology consulting, if you can believe it, at Huron, hmm. um, which actually... Uh, did p- enable me to help start a technology-based company because I was able to learn about more about communicating about technology to people who don't really necessarily have a strong technical background. So there's definitely some benefit there, and also it did help me get into business school, obviously. So uh, right. so definitely learned some good stuff from there. So you so you graduated, worked a couple of consulting jobs, mm-hmm. and then uh, trying to look at the timeline of. Um, Going back to get your MBA, you went to NYU's Stern School of Business. Right. Did you leave Huron to go back to, is that the yeah. the timing right? So I, I was in the workforce for four years after college, then went to NYU for uh, business school. And then while I was there, I arrived at business school in uh, September of 2008. So definitely an interesting time to be in business school as the economy, yeah. especially in New York, as the economy was collapsing. Just as context, uh, uh, people a year ahead of me a lot of them had jobs at Lehman Brothers at the <laughs> beginning when I got there and obviously did not by the end of the first month since they went out of business. Stern, at NYU Stern School, what were you focusing on? I mean, it's when you look at your profile, finance, media, entertainment, strategy. Mm-hmm. So what kind of stuff were you gravitating towards? And Yeah, I really made a commitment when I was in business school to build out my quantitative skill set. It seems like pretty obvious probably to people that you would go to business school to learn uh, some math or quantitative skill set, but or develop a quantitative skill set. But what I really found is that uh, you don't necessarily have to do it that much. There are a lot of people who focus, rightfully so, on marketing or more qualitative fields, which totally makes sense. Uh, I really wanted to focus as much as possible on building out my financial and economic skill set. And then also, uh, I didn't know this when I applied to business school. But once I got there, I didn't even think about a career in the sports industry until after I got to business school. So a lot of the entertainment and media entertainment side was learning about the sports industry. And NYU has uh, a professor there, his name Al Lieberman, who taught some classes. And it was one of the few business schools at the time, and this has changed, uh, that had a at least some amount of sports business involved. So uh, that was another part that I really wanted to focus on. Uh, still, even until my after my first year of business school, it never occurred to me to start uh, a business. I did start the Government and Business Association when I was in business school, which is basically uh, looking at the intersection of government and business. And our biggest claim to fame when I was there was that we had Anthony Weiner come in and speak to our <laughs> class. So that's obviously gone a very different direction from 2009 <laughs> till now. But um, but the idea is that I, I did enjoy starting that club. And at NYU, starting a club is like starting a, uh, a small business. So Getting that off the ground um, was definitely something that I, uh, at least I thought I enjoyed. Uh, so I, uh, uh, so when I did later think of the idea to start my own company, I had at least had some experience in entrepreneurship, and then I started taking more entrepreneurial classes once I was in business school. Oh, okay. So it, you're starting to kind of shift that way. Now you had also it was this a part of your your graduation requirements or whatever type of a um, fellowship or internship with the Washington Capitals? No, actually. That was not. No, no. Actually, it's really difficult to get internships, especially at that time uh, with sports teams, let alone a paying internship. The reason I, the main reason I got that is uh, one of the guy who ended up being my boss, he uh, was an NYU graduate. They, his boss was a Duke MBA graduate. His boss was a Harvard MBA graduate. That is pretty rare in the sports industry to have that level of, or that number of people who have MBAs. 
uh, and they just decided they wanted to start an internship in D.C. And also, since I'm from the D.C. area, I didn't have to pay for rent. Uh, so they paid me. I, the fact they paid me at all was great. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then from there, so it was a actually came down to me and one other guy from Stern. And he ended up working at MSG, and he's from New York, and I ended up working at the Capitol. So it worked out well for both of us. So f- that from playing sports all the way through part of college and doing the sports internship, you said you still hadn't thought of doing a startup, let alone a sports right. startup. W- wouldn't did the... Genesis because it was, was it right out of school or were you actually, is no, it? No, I was in school. I, I hate to have the cliched moment of entrepreneurship, but I literally w- did wake up at two or three in the morning. So when I was working at the Capitals, uh, we were looking to find uh, one of the projects is the Capitals had the Scarlet Capitals, which is the first female affinity or first female fan group in the NHL at the time. Uh, and they were looking for a sponsor and we tried to figure out a way to get a sponsor by working with a sponsorship team. And there were just some problems that I thought could be resolved using uh, technology and eventually analytics. And when I thought the Capitals were then and are now in Monumental Sports and Entertainment, a progressive progressive organization in the sports industry. So the fact that they were having these types of challenges led me to believe that other sports teams would have similar challenges. Uh, And from that, I I was taking uh, some entrepreneurial classes. I had uh, started that club. I thought it was a good idea, and I thought I could get the Capitals potentially to be the first client because it's clear they were looking for this type of solution, or at least the guy who I was reporting to at the time, which was the chief marketing officer. He subsequently left the organization to pursue an opportunity with a different club, um, and that kind of fizzled, but I still thought it was a good idea for the business. So uh, I took it from there. I didn't really... You know, it was still working. One of the things that you'll find with entrepreneurship, and probably talk about this a little bit later, is you know you really do have to scrap and claw, particularly if you're bootstrapping, um, bootstrapping the company, particularly as you're getting it off the ground. So I had a limited friends and family investment. I was able to save some money while working at at business school, and then I was able to um, launch the and launch the business. But I also got a consulting job that took up a big chunk, if not almost all of my time. Uh, so while I was the first couple of years while I was getting to get off the ground, I was doing, uh, you know, consulting in a, in a totally separate field in addition to working on the startup. And so talk a little bit more about that of like block six and that idea coming. Like, what did you envision at the front end and how different is that than what it is right now? Yeah, I mean, I actually, it's there are things that are completely different. There are things that are basically the same, which is. I think how a lot of these entrepreneurial ventures go. Uh, the main idea for the application is still kind of what the application is. So our main product is a software as a service solution called the Partnership Scoreboard, where you have where you can display inventory or sponsorship uh, assets. So if you're thinking about like if you're going to the United Center, you know the name of the United Center, the signage at the United Center. If there's commercials or if there's television viewable signage, which is you know anything that's on camera. If you see uh, on the court during a game, there's potentially a sign that's uh, present during the game on television. There's uh, social media campaigns, although social wasn't as big as it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that core idea of valuation and the core model that I built out to value sponsorship is actually relatively similar. What's different is the technology. There's we built in uh, two pieces of technology, especially in the past few months, that are completely different than anything that I originally anticipated us building. What I originally uh, anticipated us being is a data aggregator where we collect all these different sources of information, mm-hmm. and then create a platform where we could value all these sources, but we'd primarily rely on our customers to provide us with information. We take that information and create a value for it and create a, a using the uh, model that I developed. What we ended up finding is that we needed also to create some of those sources of data on our own. In particular, uh, we developed two pieces of technology. One's called uh, the Media Analysis Platform, which is a fully machine learning-based platform which uses uh, artificial intelligence and neural networks to essentially automatically identify logos as they appear on television screens mm-hmm. so that you can determine the value using the algorithm that we created and the technology that we developed in near real time. And the other thing we developed is a social sentiment platform. And, I, and social sentiment or social listening tool is essentially a tool that can listen to conversation um, that's going on and put a sentiment score and an overall value. So essentially teaching a machine to see and teaching a machine to read. Uh, which I never thought, that is nothing I ever thought we were going to do at this company. 
Uh, and we've been very fortunate to find people. Uh, we have a great CTO. We have a really, uh, really strong technology team, data science team. Um, and a lot of that's development is, again, is not something I anticipated when we started. To, to that specifically, how, how do you over, kind of almost overcome those hurdles? I mean, you have to, yeah. right, to meet client needs and keep moving forward, but that would probably kill a lot of people <laughs> or at least kill the ideas, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot. I mean, entrepreneurship is... Um, off, you know, it can be seen as something that's, you know, a sexy profession or like, you know, people are like, and no, I mean, to their credit, like people like Mark Zuckerberg or the guys at Snap or the guys at, you know, some of these more successful, whether or Instagram or the people, uh, guys and women or men and women who have developed these really successful entrepreneurial ventures. It does look attractive, right? It's your idea that you are able to take and build into a company, but you just hit the nail on the head. What ends up sinking you know, you have to have a good idea that that's the necessary or the table stakes to get in the game, but execution is really difficult. And executing, particularly when you're a small company and you're constantly looking for cash, you're constantly looking for validation, you're constantly looking for customers, you're trying to do what's called, and this is incredibly nerdy, so I apologize in advance already, <laughs> if it's not already been nerdy enough, um, you're trying to reduce information asymmetry, right? You know why you have a good idea. You have to convince right. customers, you have to convince investors, you have to convince potential employees, you have to content, convince media, or you have to show them or send signals about why your good idea makes it uh, something that they should get involved with. There's a saying, um, and this will date me, and even though I'm not, I am, I guess, somewhat old, but hopefully not that old, but uh, <laughs> the, uh, the nobody got fired for using IBM, right? Nobody gets fired for yeah, going yeah. with the safe choice. So you have to go get past the hurdle of, like, if you have something different and unique and things that you can benefit uh, a customer, then you have to be able to really clearly communicate that. And that's something that uh, I've gotten better at, the company's gotten better at, um, but it takes time. Like that all takes time. It all takes a lot of effort. It all takes a lot of work and there's a lot of false starts and there still are a lot of false starts. Um, and you have to be willing to, and I'm not always the best at this, but I'm getting better at it, at deal with failure and deal with things and they go wrong. Um, and be able to internalize that and translate that into something that can be developed and move forward. And how do you, as a, as a startup in this you know, there's so much going on, which I think is great for the city of Chicago in startups and mm. innovation. But that's a lot of people clawing for, um, you know, there's a finite amount of dollars and there's a finite amount of human capital, smart, yeah. smart people that can make stuff work, for lack of a better expression. So, I, you know, what's do you what would you pinpoint has been able to help you get past that to, to continue to. Well, the capital the capital is a really interesting thing in Chicago. I think one of the big issues that a lot of entrepreneurial ventures in the ca in Chicago in the Midwest is there's a different appetite for risk than there is on the coast. Um, we actually raised a bunch of our money not in Chicago. We have mm -hmm. a good chunk of it. We have some really great investors in Chicago, um, but a majority of our money that we've raised to date has been outside of Chicago. And part of that is, and again, there's just a different appetite for risk where a lot of investors in Chicago want to see much more significant traction, even for companies that are just starting out or seed stage, seed stage companies as compared to other places in the U.S. Particularly, there's a big difference between San Francisco, New York, Boston even, um, versus uh, the Midwest and Chicago. Um, so that's just the reality of the situation is that you have to be flexible in terms of where you're going to raise money. Uh, in terms of human capital... I mean, we've had a couple uh, key advantages. One is that people like to work in sports. I mean, that's yeah. Although, of course, we find the few people who actually have no idea about sports or don't <laughs> care about sports, but uh, we definitely have a disproportionate amount of a sports company who maybe didn't like sports as much as I. <laughs> I don't know if anybody likes sports as much as I, but they certainly there are some people who don't like sports. Some of the first times they've ever watched a uh, game is by analyzing the video that we had to develop mm. for a client. Uh, but working in sports has been helpful. Um, but the reason we're able to attract people who aren't interested in sports is the challenge we're trying to solve, which is create using technology and analytics to create a cross-channel valuation of essentially of advertising in a transparent way. So people removing the black box and advertising valuation is something that's a, a challenge, not just in sports, but in almost any industry. The chief marketing officer of Procter & Gamble recently said that all advertising is crap because we don't know how much value we're getting for it. Um, and that's a big problem. And 
what we're really trying to do at B6A, besides developing these technology products, which we think are the best uh, or close to the best in the industry, is develop the language around sponsorship and advertising that eliminates the black box. So if everybody's at least speaking the same language, then they're having better conversations and they're having conversations that are about value. And we think if everybody's speaking the same language, then everybody can make more money because the people who are selling advertising can, can communicate exactly why they're delivering value for your brand. And the people who are buying advertising can figure out where's the best place to spend our advertising and spend more in places that are going to drive a significant ROI. But you know, for a variety of reasons, people are not been afraid or haven't had the capability or just didn't want to because they didn't think it was a good business move to share those metrics. So you know, I think by attracting the people who are interested in sports, interested in, in developing, uh, I hate saying this, but cutting edge technology, um, I hate saying the cutting edge, not that we're developing. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and also uh, people who are just interested in this problem of like, how do we actually have a, co- a real conversation between buyers and sellers of sponsorship? That's put us in a good position to attract some uh, uh, really good talent. Well, that's what's to me is interesting. I've been working in sports and or event marketing for 25 years myself is that there haven't been uh, a lot of options uh, in terms of the valuation, and sometimes the valuation still has so many um, blind spots or you know gaps in it. And so it sounds as though something you've been doing is going to either the sponsor or or property side, both um, both of those folks as well as the um, well the the brand and being would be on the sponsor side, I guess. Going to those folks and trying to pull some more data and the standardization piece out of them, right? I mean, it's almost like yeah, I mean, te- technology independent, that some of it has to be, we got to sit at the table and figure out, let's go with this and let's standardize it. Because otherwise you say it's worth a penny in impression and you could say it's worth a dollar in impression and technically they're both right. Well, right. So there's a key I- issue in valuation that you just hit on, right? People always ask, do you have the right valuation? Well, Right valuation is not, there is actually no right valuation. Like if you think of the stock market, the stock market exists because people think different stocks are worth different prices. If there wasn't, if people thought, if everybody thought a stock was worth the same price, there would be no reason to have a stock market, right? There'd be no reason. People wouldn't, you know, buy and trade stock. I mean, that just wouldn't exist. right. I think Uh, it's worth a dollar. Well, so do I. Right. Okay. Right. So what would be the point, right, of having a market? So. What you, but what you're going at is, uh, and what you're getting at is a larger conversation around valuation in terms of what we try to do is layer in different pieces of best practice valuation techniques and layer in transparency. Part of that is, so the way our company works is we do a lot of the work up front. So you're saying, like, do you have to go to the partner? Yes, we can go to the partner and get some of the information, but we try to get information from our data partners, information that we create on our own, information that's potentially even publicly available and layer that into our model. Um, and then we also create we also create this framework that says this is the framework that we are using and we will put all the inputs in there and then we show it to our client to say like this is what we've done now tell us you know where you think you have feedback or where you think we may have missed the mark and usually like 90 to 95% of the time there's alignment but there's sometimes where there's not and there's sometimes where the client will tell us you know, we think it's this, and we'll say, oh, yeah, I can see why you think that will make the change. Sometimes we'll be like, no, this is, you know, you may want that, but that's not actually what's happening. Uh, and then there's, you were talking about before, you know, somebody says X and somebody says Y. Well, we give the same information to both the buyer and seller. So even if the buyer is our client, we would provide the same information to the buyer as we would the seller. Because we have a fully transparent model, there's really no place for us to hide even if we wanted to. Uh, or we try to be as transparent as possible with the way we do valuation. So if you can see what we're doing, how we couldn't necessarily have a different valuation. Now, you could take our information and say, you know, the buyer could say, well, I think it's this input is incorrect for these reasons. The seller could say, I could say a different input is incorrect, and then you could tweak the values that way. But the foundation of the conversation is using the same language. It's here's the framework, here's the language, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Now, going back to early on, you had envisioned... Um, initially is more uh, the core idea of being compiling the data from the customer, your client. Mm -hmm. Uh, How much of that, uh, are you able to do a lot of that right now? And, and does that then change? Are you, you know, constantly morphing then, you know, you've got, you you talked about, um, you know, uh, best in class examples or, you know, those kinds of things are, 
are you able to capture that? Are you seeing shifts happening that you come, can come back now as you work with more and more brands, companies, events, whatever? Is that changing what you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think from our perspective, there's, um, in terms of data infrastructure, what we've really tried to do is, again, eliminate the need to uh, go to our clients to provide us with data. But the best data can come from the client. So we've created a, a, a structure that enables us to get the data from the clients if they have it, but also to provide information from our data partners or from our own research or from publicly available information. Either way, the model and the approach can work. So um, what we have seen, though, in just some kind of overall trends is that people are really identifying what's uh, what they want from valuation, which is in particular, they don't necessarily want a standard valuation that could be applied to anybody. They want, uh, I want to know what this value is worth for my company, for this activation, and being able to clearly understand that, and then being able to, and the number one thing that we've really worked on here, um, and I think we're still working on it, is communicating value. So I need to be able to clearly and quickly communicate value to all uh, parties, whether that's my boss, whether that's to um, the client's boss, whether it's to the client, whether it's to the media, whether it's to whoever. And I need to be able to understand it and quickly digest it. And then if I want more detail, I can always get more detail. But I need to be able to understand what's going on and quickly uh, quickly digest it and quickly be able to communicate about it in ways that I understand. And uh, are you surprised with going out and selling your services out there? Are you surprised with the direction this is going with the types of questions you get or the requests you get? Is it, or is it what you expected because there's a gaping hole so much in valuation <laughs> out there? Um, I don't know. Some of our competitors might say there wasn't a gaping hole. Well, but, of course. <laughs> but, um, but no, I think it's, I guess I am not surprised at the questions that are happening now. I am a little surprised that they, some of the questions weren't being asked sooner. But I do think that one of the reasons the company has taken off is that there's become ever-increasing market product fit. Uh, and people are because people are asking for what we can do and because we have what we think, again, is a best-in-class solution, um, that we're, the questions that people are asking are aligning with the experience that we can deliver. And part of being a startup is being able to innovate quickly, um, and whether that's excuse me, whether that's with new technology, whether that's with new you know tweaks to uh, existing products, we're able to innovate quickly. So if there is an issue that a client comes up with that uh, we can use the framework that we have in order to address that issue, which is a novel issue, you know we're able to do that relatively quickly. So I think what's really been interesting to us is something, and this is a well-known kind of business school-y type term is judo strategy, where we're able to use, to a certain degree, the size of our competitors, which should be an advantage for them because they can be able to, um, you know, they have more resources, they have more people potentially, they have more, you know, they have established brand names and they have established clients. What we're able to do is say, look, you you know that this brand or our competitor is known for this, and they may, that you know, usually they are doing a pretty good job of what they say they can do, mm-hmm. but we're doing something different, and we're doing something that's uh, better, we think, uh, because we're doing something that's different, and because we're, you know, integrating technology, analytics, transparency, cross-channel valuation, because we're able to have these clear points of differentiation, and because we're able to move and pivot uh, much more quickly than our competitors, we're able to establish this language and fill the void that we think has existed existed in valuation because we are nimble and we are able to move more quickly. Well, and you're going across more touch points, right, than some of the folks, I guess you would probably say our competitors might be much more, you know, specifically focused on TV Mm -hmm. or digital or in stadium, one of those, but there's not as many that are aggregating, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's always been a challenge, particularly with sports. Sports have been traditionally sold as integrated marketing packages where there's cross-channel information, and that's what we thought one of the benefits of our product would be is at least we could integrate all that information into one model. That would be helpful. But um, again, it's the idea of if I'm looking at evaluation, I need to be able to say, like, what is? how do I compare on a more apples-to-apples basis a social media campaign with an in-venue activation? So it, how does a sign in the, in the venue compare to if I do a promotion on social media? And without the ability to create those, and that's part of what our model does, is it creates the apples-to-apples comparison because do you count the, you know, Facebook has counted, although it's, it can evolve a little bit, it has counted as little as three seconds of video view as an impression. Right. 
where most people would consider a television commercial to be 15 or 30 seconds, where most people would consider when you're in the venue, if you have static signage, I mean, that could be two hours of looking at a sign. So what is, how do you make those uh, cross comparisons? So that's what we do. We benchmark it to say, here's what the standard advertising unit is. Here's what, how all of these different advertising uh, uh, items compare or the sponsorship items compare to that standard unit. And then we can scale up or down the value that's being generated based on understanding what the standard is by having a completely uh, uh, transparent benchmarking approach. And then we also look at, you know, not just the people, the number of people who are seeing it or for how long they're seeing it, but the quality of those people to the brand. You know, on a fundamental basis, different uh, companies are going to get different values even from the same asset. You know, if you're a, a business-to-consumer company like Pepsi or if you're a business-to-business company like CDW, you're going to get a different value. Like there's just, you have different customer types, you have different geographies. You should get a different value. There's mm-hmm. something that should work for Pepsi because of they're more focused on a, you know, a potential uh, retail customer versus like again a CDW, which might be more focused on an enterprise customer. So the idea of just layering in quantity, time, and uh, quality, so that you can go to a partner uh, and explain why, uh, if you're a team, league, event, or athlete, you can go to a partner and say, "This is why this is specifically good for you." Or on the vice versa, if you're the buyer, you can go to the seller and say, "This is why we specifically want to focus on these." Uh, specific assets it just changes the conversation and i guess that's the you know it's always the david and goliath and david's the nimble one that can right. get around and that's what you you have as a selling point rather than being set on well this is what something is valued this is how we do it because you're new on the scene or relatively that you've been able to incorporate like the putting together the what do you call it with the heat map and showing on yeah screen, the media analysis platform right i mean that's it's well, it's visually is amazing, but the the tool there that instead of having to come from some you know old system or th- or system of thinking, you're allowed to just kind of start with more of a blank slate and then you're able to get a better product, I think, out to the clients in reporting right. because of that, because you're not like, well, this is the way we've always done it, or it has right. to be built into this other platform. So that's probably the biggest example of the technology side of what you've had to almost as building the plane as it's flying, but <laughs> you've had to do, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, that's actually a, a really good way of describing it. Um, but, you know, because we're not beholden to legacy approaches, and this is actually something uh, I recently wrote about for the Sports Business Journal, which is kind of the Wall Street Journal of the sports business. Mm-hmm even the journal obviously being the same name. But uh, the idea is that, you know, the the traditional way that people looked at television viewable signage, or at least the first way, was literally people just having stopwatches and saying, was the sign on Mm -hmm. screen? Okay, how long was it on screen for? And there have been evolutions of that. There's been some automation, but having a full-scale automated approach hasn't been... um, you know, where you can get results much more quickly. So in the past, you had to wait, you know, weeks or months to right. get results. Right. And That's we're able been to, my experience with it. Yeah. Right. And we're able to get results back within, you know, typically within 48 to 72 hours with the full heat map that you're talking about, where you can literally see on a television screen where something shows up. We also can create using our visual verified tool, thumbnail images. So you can see actually exactly what the machine is looking yeah. at. Um, and it's just that idea of because we're starting from this excuse me, because we're starting from this approach of transparency, we've created tools that are built on this idea and we've created technology that hopefully can be faster, that can be better, and that can be more open um, so you can get clearer results. But you're right. I mean, the reason we're able to think about it is neural, the technology foundation we use is neural networks and really neural networks in their current form haven't really existed since 2016. So, (laughs) you know, and there are a lot of people still, I mean, to this day, it's similar to the brain. Like people don't actually know how the brain works. We have an idea of the structure of how the brain works and the basic way the brain works, but the way that the brain actually function is actually not known to anybody. And that's similar with neural networks. Neural networks function like a brain, which is they have what are called in uh, neural networks nodes, but in humans are called neurons. And where you send neurotransmitters in, in humans, from neuron to neuron to convey messages. And as you learn, those pathways become strengthened in your brain. So the reason I know what the Pepsi logo looks like is I've seen the Pepsi logo how many thousands of times. Um, And that's the same thing essentially with the machine. As the machine learns and sees more of the Pepsi logo, it learns by changing the weights of its uh, the, of the relationship between the nodes uh, about how what the Pepsi logo should look like. So 
But how it actually changes or decides to change the weights, nobody really knows. Right. So you have to just basically train the system, and it's a lot of trial and error. Uh, and that's just like that kind of thinking, the fact that we could potentially create a system where you could automate a process without fully understanding. We know it's better, and we know object identification and logo identification, like machines are better than humans at doing this task if the machine is programmed correctly. And programming correctly in this case means training it. Um, but that's the limit almost of what you can do. Uh, there's some things on the margins for sure, and there's some things that you can do, and I won't go. It's already nerdy. Like again, uh, We've already gone there on the rabbit hole a little bit, but um, there's definitely other things you can do, but the primary thing to do is create, uh, a, you know, is increasing the training and the, and the training set in order to make it better. But it's it, to me, it's fascinating of seeing it. I mean, I'm just sitting I'm way out in the periphery between you and knowing and Gabe Adelini, our good friend, chief revenue officer, Gabe Adelini, will give him a shout out. But I mean, seeing the stuff you guys have put together, I mean, and in a, such a relatively short period of time is, uh, and with a pretty lean staff, as I look around the, uh, the offices overlooking the beautiful 48 degrees gray, <laughs> <laughs> uh, classic Chicago, Chicago loop, spring, yeah, yeah. classic spring with air quotes, but but I mean, uh, it's it, to me, it's very impressive that it's been put together as quickly and as as effectively as it has. But it also blows my mind, like, uh, uh, you know, not to pick on competitors, but if you can do this over this period of time without having deep pockets, basically. I mean, yes, you've got investors, and it's not you're not total show string. But I mean, how come that? It's taken till you guys have focused on it to do some of this well, stuff. I, I it's think, really interesting. To so me. one of the things, and again, uh, take this with a grain of salt because it's coming right. directly from me. Right. But so, like, but one of the things that are about good entrepreneurial ideas is is usually something along the lines of what you just said. It's like I can't believe somebody didn't think of this before. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's when I first came up with this idea. I literally told the capitals, you should go hire somebody to do this right. because this is something I assumed would have existed yeah. in some form. <laughs> um, and again, it's taken a long time to get from that to where we are today. Um, and probably longer than <laughs> maybe uh, the relatively short time that you just said. But, right. uh, but the point is, like, I think one of the advantages and disadvantages that we have as a company is the fact that I look at things and say, like, why couldn't they be different? Mm -hmm. And if they could be different, why can't I make them different? Or why can't the company make them different? And I don't think that's necessarily the uh, culture ethos of other companies, rightfully so, right? If you have a good product, you have a core product, you have a product that's working, and you have a a large uh, product market fit, it's hard to say like, well, we should do something differently because it could cannibalize our current product or our current revenue. It's just much harder to do that as a larger company. And especially when the customers didn't know about it. Um, you know, one of the most famous examples of this is, um, you know, uh, Henry Ford is, is, and he had his plenty of problems, but Henry Ford is, you know, if you ask people what they want in the 1900s in terms of transportation, they would say a faster horse, right? They didn't even know a car could exist. Yeah, right. So it's not clear, like, you know, from their perspective, you don't think differently about the problem. It's not clear that something like this could exist. And the fact that we built it is a, is a credit, not just, well, I mean, obviously a credit to me, but like a credit to the team and how fast the team is able to innovate and change and create new products and solve problems. Um, and, you know, given the fact that you are lean, you have to do that, right? It's yeah. like you almost are forcing yourself to think that way. Um, and that's why the lean startup is a popular kind of business uh, framework that a lot of even larger companies try to adopt because right. so they can act and think about it in that kind of way where we can think about it from a lean startup perspective. But, you know, that's always a challenge for large companies. Large companies have the challenge of if we innovate, we are disrupting something that we have already created and are we yeah. potentially cannibalizing our own revenue for something that we don't don't know that's going to work in the future? So where did the, you, you know, how do you cultivate being an entrepreneur, the entrepreneurship gene or, <laughs> or unleash it or whatever inside you? You talked about the lean startup. Yeah. Do you read or did you at least, you reading a lot, a lot of articles, a lot of books? Are you yeah, picking I mean, people's brains? How, how do you develop that? I mean, some of it, some of it is like... Um, yeah, readings, uh, you know, reading articles. Actually, not too many books, but uh, I usually read books about other things, as unfortunately some of my staff knows. Uh, right now I'm reading a book about physics, so that's, you know, about oh, the, the greatest story ever told. And I wrote some articles about physics, so that's that's a whole other thing. But um, But the main thing is, like, 
from the cultivating the entrepreneurial gene, uh, I think there's definitely people, there's always going to be people who are more likely to be entrepreneurs, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs from, I guess not me since I can't say it, but entrepreneurs, because there are certain people who, there are certain people who want certainty and there's nothing wrong with certainty. There's right, nothing right. wrong with, you know, and typically in business school, the most common professions are investment banker, um, consultant or marketing, which is usually brand management. All of those careers are great career paths, and you'll have financial. You are likely to have financial stability. You're likely to be able to move up the ranks. You're likely to have a, right. There's a, a, a defined path, yeah. and ladder, right. and yeah. And if you work hard, and you you know you you can make a good money, and you can make a good living. So you have to be not just in business school, but in any profession, you have to be willing to say, I don't want that because I think I can build something better, smarter. Uh, not even smarter. I think I can build something better that can then be monetized and that can then be, um, that I can build into a company. And that just, there aren't that many people who can do that. So I think just by definition, it weeds people out. Uh, But I think in terms of like cultivating the entrepreneurial gene is like, I think I've always had this kind of, um, and I think for better and much of the time for worse, of like uh, an argumentative or like, why does it have to be this way kind of personality? Like, why are things this way? Like, why do we have to do things this way? Why are we thinking this way? And that's, you know, again, I I think that enables me to think and be literally creative in terms of like creating new ideas and new thoughts. Um, But it's also like, you have to be... creativity is really, like I said, is only the necessary, the sufficient condition in order to be an entrepreneur is you have to be willing to work hard and you have to be, and part of that, I think, you know, being an athlete has helped that, you know, where you're used to working hard and used to putting in a lot of hours. Part of that is like, I, you know, this is the industry I always wanted to be in, even though I didn't know it, you know, I've always been a sports fan. I've always liked sports and being able to work in sports every day is something that I've wanted to do. Um, the passion piece, the get out, getting out yeah. of bed, excited about what's coming with the day. That yeah, you, you do that. Yeah, that's exactly. Got it. You've got but to like, have that. you have to be, you, you have to be, and I think this is probably the most important. You have to be willing to to suspend your belief because <laughs> what you're doing is you're most likely going to fail. Like you are, it's and even us, we still have, you know, we're still probably more likely to fail than not fail. I mean, we're we're growing and we're doing a good job of acquiring clients, but again. You just have to look at the Fortune 500 from 20 years ago and from today, and there's a lot of companies in the Fortune 500 who are bankrupt, right? So there's some probability that will be bankrupt, but you have to be willing to suspend your belief that you can do something that you just said, why can't these larger companies have done it? If it's such a good idea, why hasn't somebody thought of it already? Why aren't other companies doing it? Why aren't other companies making money? And why are you specifically going to be able to do it? And that does require suspension of belief. And entrepreneurs are able to do it because they have the conviction of the idea or they're just, you know, too stupid to know anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes that's right. Obliviousness might be a a key. That's a better way, oblivious. Or or large egos. The combo. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you've also been, you've you've teached classes um, at Northwestern and um, Masters of Sports Administration program. And then... You've also written the book, The Sports Strategist, should put a plug in here, Sports Strategist, Developing Leaders for a Higher Performance Industry. You co-authored that book in 2014. You can find it from Oxford University Press. So again, is the teaching coming from actually a desire to learn or, or is it more altruistic that you're looking to share the knowledge or both? I will lie and say it's altruistic. Uh, I will say that I, I actually, and I joke you can be a lying, I do genuinely enjoy teaching students. Like I do genuinely enjoy the interaction. I do think there's a lot of things that they can learn about the industry that I can teach them through the book. Or I have a couple chapters in other books, one about uh, how uh, the Cubs have used their uh, renovation of Wrigley Field as part of their, a key part of their brand transformation from global losers to global winners. Uh, another chapter in another book called Sports Management Analytics, where we talk about in detail how to uh, uh, value sports sponsorship. But I do think, like, I do definitely enjoy that part of it. Like, teaching people the concepts that have helped become the foundation of the business is something I enjoy doing. However, like, there definitely is a non-altruistic sense to this in terms of we are trying to build expertise and become thought leaders in the sports industry. We are trying to build intelligence in all senses of the word. And by being a professor at Northwestern's Masters of Sports Administration program, it allows us, again, to reduce that information asymmetry. You know, why should we go with Block 6 analytics? 
well, the company's not just about me, but the company is led by somebody who's clearly a thought leader in the space, and here's X, Y, and Z reason why that person is a thought leader. And you may not agree with that, but at least there's uh, evidence that supports that claim. So the mm-hmm. book, the chapters in books, the articles, the teaching, all of that goes to us building up a level of intellectual capital where we're not just hopefully perceived as a vendor with a technology platform, but we're thought of as a, you know, we're considered to be a thought leader in the industry who's doing innovative uh, or creating innovative products because of the way that they think about the industry. Well, the, I mean, so to all that, how the heck do you find time? I mean, do you sleep because you're, because <laughs> you're meeting and keeping, uh, finding new investors and keeping all the investors happy. You've got your team to lead here. Or you've got your, got to be finding clients, keeping the existing clients happy, finding the new clients, and then making sure everything's continuing to be built out. The clients are all being serviced. You're teaching this class. How do you balance all that? Yeah, I mean, I guess the short answer is you don't, but you figure <laughs> it out. But uh, the the main thing is, and this is, again, another cliche, is uh, you have to have a team in place. And I, I'm still not as good as this as I could be, but you know, you have to let your team do what they need to do. We have a CTO who's way more knowledgeable about the technology than I am. We have a data science team that we let, you know, we don't let, we encourage them to build out the new service offering. So I set the vision for what we want the company to be. They execute on the vision. And if they have to, you have to let them execute on the vision. And that sometimes I think they would argue I don't let them do that. But, well, but that's a problem, right, with entrepreneurs typically yes. is it's their baby and right. so to let go of it. It takes time, very and again, I'm still working on it, so I shouldn't, you know. Um, oh, I know, I know. I, you know, when you're not around, yeah, I know games. I, I know what I, games. Well, is. it's not even just Gabe; it's <laughs> oh, kind of everybody. everybody no question. <laughs> but they, uh, but I think you have to. Like again, we we can't. I can't do everything. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't do everything. So you have to. And like a good example is like I came up with the original design for the website, and if you saw our version, our the one I essentially created with help from the. Uh, a graphic designer and the one that somebody else created who actually has a skill set in doing this, it's like night and day. And I'm just like, you know, you just find that I'm not good at that. Like we should find people who are better at that, whose whole job is doing that. And they created a much better you know, version yeah, of our site. But, so but that's the thing is if you can't, you have to be able sometimes to realize to get out of the way, right? Yeah. That you don't know everything, and that's hard for anybody well, to really... Most people could say, I mean, obviously, I, <laughs> okay. I'm not that person. No, no, I'm joking. No, but you have to. I mean, like, again, it's difficult. I mean, it's even during the conversation like this, you know, you everything, you have to get in the position, and again, I'm still growing this role, but you have to be in the position where, you know, you're the one who's setting the culture, you're the one who's setting the tone, you're the one who's ultimately, yes, you might be the face of the organization, will always be the face of the organization, at least until... Um, you step down as a CEO, but, um, you know, that is something that people are looking to you. And I don't think people, I I mean, I certainly didn't realize this, maybe others did, you know, how much of that, that it it actually impacts. So like when you ask somebody, you know, to do something, you know, it's coming not from Adam, it's coming from the CEO and you have to be like, well, if it's coming from the CEO, we got to do it right away. And it's like, well, no, 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 that's not what I really meant. Just was checking on something like, so like, but you have to, you have to be aware of, um, you have to be aware of what it means to be, a, you know, starting a company when you're a one person versus having a company. Now we have 11 employees and 16 FTEs, and we're looking to continue to grow that over the next, you know, uh, at least over the next year. Um, you know, it's just different, right? I mean, it's a different company. It requires a different skill set. It requires me to do different things. And I just have to be okay with the fact that, you know, I'm not going to be the one building out all the models. I'm not going to be the one who's interacting every day with the clients. I'm not going to be the one who, um, you know, I'm not going to come up with all the ideas for how to make the product better. And a lot of that, and I would say the vast majority of that is for the better. I mean, you hire people and you need them to do what they need to do, but it's still tough, right? I mean, it's exactly for the reason you said. It's like, Right. It's tough to let go of your child. Right. It's your baby. Yeah. And so So now I guess I know how my parents feel. No. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> As a joke. That, that was a joke. That was a joke. And a bad one. It went, no, <laughs> I'll give you about a five and a half out of ten. That's um, all you can ask for. Yeah. So I think we've I think we've knocked out a bunch of this of talking about where block six came from. Wait, wait, oh, but we didn't at block six. Why do I, I what's the name? Where did that come yeah, from? Yeah, so when I was originally thinking of starting the company, I was originally gonna do it with a couple people from NYU. So NYU is broken into cohorts and we were all in block six and it kinda rhymed with analytics. So 
That's so that, that, it's an NYU thing. It is an NYU oh. thing, and everything in the company is purple because both NYU and Northwestern are purple. So, so much to the chagrin of many people, yeah, we, as we an, will be purple till the end. As an orange and blue Illini, the purple <laughs> makes my skin crawl. <laughs> anything else that uh, topics or anything specifically around what's going on with Block Six or? You know, maybe anything you're excited about coming down the the pipeline in the near future that we didn't get to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think from our perspective, we're at a really interesting place as a company because we we this is our moment in time. This is where we're going to grow. Uh, we have uh, several deals that each one of them would be our biggest deal to date, uh, which is a great position to be in. Uh, and I think over the next uh, few months, you'll see uh, a lot more of us just in terms of being in the news, working with some great clients, seeing some of the results. Um, and we're really excited about that. So uh, we have some really new, interesting products, which we can't talk about because right. we're still developing them. And my CTO would kill me, I think, if I mentioned them. Right. I, I, I don't even, I, yeah, I don't have the NDA signed, so I, I can't even take a look <laughs> at it. And I don't know them. if we can go to every one of your listeners again yeah, to decide the right. NDA. That's but, right. No. Um, but I think it's just, you know, what's really interesting is if, as we continue to grow, hopefully, that um, how the company will continue to change and how. Uh, the culture will evolve. The company will evolve. The products will evolve. We have some. We have a, a lot of ideas for new products. Uh, we have a lot of ideas for how to improve our existing products. Uh, our, you know, we have a lot of ideas that come from our staff that also have ideas about what they want to do. Um, and then we have a lot of ideas that even, you know, even come from the clients um, about what they're looking for and what they're interested in. So we just have this really interesting amalgam of different factors that are coming in, which is. You know, if you're going to say, like, why do you start a company? It's to get to the point like this, and hopefully we don't screw it up. <laughs> oh, jeez. You were sounding so strong. I know, it's so positive to live. so good. You got to have a little bit. The future bit of, is so bright. This is our time. A, I mean, it's like a little bit. You got to have a little Chicago we're, weather on your dream. Yeah, that's day. true. That's true. That's <laughs> realistic. Well, I've really appreciated. Uh, we're running out of time here, Adam. I've appreciated your time. Uh, exciting and as you know, a few months down the road, maybe when we've launched a few, we, I don't know, we, you. Hey, you're, we'd love I, to have you as yeah, part well, of the team. Okay, yeah. all right, there we go. I just got a, a Gabe, Gabe, job offer. Gabe said you can be our sound engineer, so he's already <laughs> got right. that. Right. So, so he's out. already made the offer. <laughs> I, have, I just basically have to follow through on it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to do another one of these when uh, we've, we've even got more stuff to talk about. But uh, Adam Grossman from Block 6 Analytics, thanks so much for joining us today for the Painless Podcast. Thank you for having me. Hey there, hope you enjoyed that chat with Adam Grossman from Block 6. Please subscribe and leave your feedback wherever you're listening to the Painless Podcast. Also, highly recommend you scroll back through the feed to check out some of the other episodes if you haven't already. Roosevelt University's AD John Gerald Millo, Jason Sachs from Positive Coaching Alliance is in there. The aforementioned lovely TK Gore from CSN Chicago is a very well-received episode, as well as Spikeball's Chris Reuter. Also has some great chats with sports media like Nancy Armour, Julie DeCaro. Just won an award, actually, the uh, More Than Mean video that she was involved with. And, of course, Stephen Bardo. Please email any and all feedback or interest in sponsorship to painlesspod at painless.network. That'll do it for this week. Until next time. It's Chris Hartwig saying, stay connected, friends. Stay connected, friends.